Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Kathy Entwistle's with us, Morgan Stanley Managing Director. Kathy, it is always a joy to speak to you. And in these holiday, thin trading sorts of days, why are we seeing stocks under pressure on a moment that we start to talk about China reopening? I think that there's a lot going on, and I think there's a lot of hangover from the you know inflation, interest rates, um, you know, continue to to creep up. Uh, and also, I would also say that we're not taking into account, which is the big point, company earnings. The earnings are going to be a real issue going into the first quarter, and that hasn't been priced in the market yet. So we've priced in what the Fed has done, but we haven't priced in what the corporations have done yet. And yes, China is opening, and that's you know, somewhat of a big deal, but it's not big enough to move the market the way everyone's hoping it would. And Kathy, I'm just reading your note this morning. Boy, you're bearish. I mean, I love your note here. Fire was the Fed and raising rates. Ice is the resulting downward earnings revisions. Um, and that gets you to maybe, you know, the S&P can dip down to 3,3300. And just, just so you know, folks, the S&P is at 3,800 right here. So that's a big move. So Kathy, what do you think their earnings risk really is in the S&P 500 earnings looking forward? What is the downside in your mind? Well, the downside is that that the companies have been kicking the can. Uh, we, we were expecting them to come out with more realistic uh, forward earnings last quarter, and they didn't. So now that means it's going to come out this coming up quarter. And what, what that means is we've got higher interest rates, so companies have to pay more to borrow. We have consumers who might be a little bit more concerned about spending. So th that's also going to hit the bottom line of corporations. And the final thing is the cost of goods sold. It's it's going up and somebody's going to have to take that into account. It doesn't look like the consumers are going to be buying into it, which means the corporations have to start to take part of the hit along with maybe raising some of the prices. I mean, let's talk about inflation because the end of last week was the readings that looked like inflation was going in the direction of travel that people wanted to see. Yes, we all want it to go faster, stronger, but we are starting to see a cooling in inflation. How optimistic are you that that remains the direction of travel from a consumer perspective? I, I actually am optimistic that the inflation is going to cool um, definitely by, you know, second half of the year. And that will help somewhat. But the problem is it's going to be hitting the consumers now. And they, you know, they're running out of all of the extra money that they had to spend. They're putting things on credit cards. It's going to become a real problem next quarter, quarter after. And from that standpoint, even though inflation will be cooling, it's still going to take the consumer a little bit 
of a time to, you know, step back in and start buying again. Kathy, tough year for stocks. Uh, we're all aware of that, but it was an unprecedented tough year for bonds here. I'm looking at the two year though, 4.3%, 4.36%. Should I be buying some bonds here in 2023? Absolutely. We, we like bonds over stocks for 2023, uh, for sure. And I will say, when you look at the you know return of bonds this past year with corporate bonds, muni bonds, I mean, double digit losses in, in bonds is, is, you know, it's been unheard of for quite a long time. So it is a good buying opportunity. We started talking about buying bonds mid-year and it's been paying off. And I think going into 2023 as well, where else can you get these nice, you know, uh, returns and without the volatility. I think we're past the volatility in the bonds. So you'll get the return without the volatility and just clip your coupons for the time being. Kathy, I want to ask you, let's go glass half full. Where are the upside risks to all of this? There's a great piece out by Tom Orlick from an economic perspective, thinking about where some of the upside, the things that we're not planning on, on the, they might look more positive. I mean, in some ways, maybe in the longer term, this China reopening will be that. Where are you ensuring that you don't lose the upside as well as protecting yourself to the downside? Um, absolutely. I think we have to, you know, we have short term and long term views, right? So short term, it looks a little bit more negative. Long term is always a more positive view. We want our clients to be invested for the long term, but we also don't want to start jumping in before we think it's too soon. A stock market has always been a leading indicator of where the economy is going, and it will be one of the first things to come back quickly and fiercely before the economy turns. So what we don't want to happen is people to lose sight of that and wait until everything is picture perfect before they start investing in the market again. That's why we like dollar cost averaging in these types of markets. That's why we like also taking advantage of dips and buying the dips. Because if you're a long-term investor and you've got a long-term view, then you do want to buy at these lower prices today. How about high yield? You know, I don't mind taking a little risk out there, Kathy, but in the face of a recession, would it be unwise to search for yield in the high yield market? Yeah, you're talking to a girl who worked in the corporate uh, bonds nice. back in the late. So, um, you know, I did uh, see quite a bit of high yield um, companies go into default and bankruptcies. So it is a possibility, you know, corporates, you, you always have that issue. So for right now, I'm, I'm keeping my clients away from the riskier, higher yielding um, bonds and sticking with the more um, investment grade. All right, good stuff. We really appreciate that. Getting a good outlook for these markets. Kathy Entwistle, so Morgan Stanley, Managing Director. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Pleased to say on the show today is Robert Falk. He's the founder and CEO of Enride. Now, Enride develops self-driving and electric trucks, and of course, the software systems that help them to use to monitor deliveries. And Robert, it's fascinating to have some time with you today. We thank you. Of course, founded the business in Stockholm, 2016. Talk to us about what you've seen and the customers that you start to talk to: the Coca-Colas, the Littles, the AB InBevs, the the Mullermersks. How are these companies looking at supply chain bottlenecks in the future? First of all, thank you for having me. I, I think it's a fascinating point in the overall economy right now because what, from our perspective, what we are seeing is that we don't really see that slowdown happening right now. A few of our customers, of course, are seeing taking a longer time to make decisions. But overall, for the transition here to electric and autonomous, I think there is a clear engagement there. And I think that overall, the consumer and little bit of downturn of the economy is not really starting to hit yet. And that's what we are at least saying. So people are still doing business. And I think a little bit in some sectors, we are a little bit less. But overall, I think it's, uh, we're not in a recession yet. Mm. We might be in next year, but overall, it's uh, still a lot of people doing business. Robert, I know uh, your company recently raised $500 million in equity and debt. What, do you, what are the use of proceeds there? No, but for us, it's about scaling and more and more installing more capacity for doing uh, transport together with our customers. So we are deploying a lot of uh, electric and autonomous transport vehicles, as well as transport and the charging infrastructure to support it. You are currently, of course, prevalent across Europe, Sweden, Germany, the Benelux, and indeed in the United States. What of China? What of that $500 million that you now get to put to work? Is it about global expansion? Is it about alleviating some of those pressure points we've grown to know and to hate? I think it's uh, something very interesting overall is that uh, the supply chain for electric uh, trucks as well as chargers and the whole infrastructure mm. uh, for uh, all that comes to electric and autonomous transport is still to be actually created. So I think that China has a key point in being the supplier there. I mean, they come to, uh, we are in a very weird position from historically, but China, in my view, is actually a leader in a lot of the electric, both batteries as well as a lot of engines and also the maturity ecosystem when it comes to electrification. So for us, it's uh, China is an extremely important part of that supply. I think that the Western Hemisphere needs to focus very clearly to, uh, so to say, catch up to the maturity of the Chinese ecosystem when it comes to electrification and optimization. Robert, give us a sense of you know, how much road freight on a global basis contributes to, uh, you know, global CO2 and, and kind of, it feels like it's a big contributor and, and it really is ripe for some innovation. Yeah, 100%. I mean, globally, it's that between 7 to 8% of global CO2 emissions come from heavy road freight transport. And uh, we are still in the same ecosystem that was created more than 100 years ago now. And I think that with digital, electric and autonomous technology, we have the potential to actually rewrite that. Mm. And it's not about the size of the battery. It's not about uh, creating a better truck. It's about creating a new infrastructure for transport. And uh, if you do, 
we see that between 40 to 50 percent of uh, electric should be electric driven by the business case today. Robert, I'm going to ask a sensitive question, but of course you're based, well, you were helping found this business in Sweden, in Germany, in the Benelux, countries that care an awful lot about climate change and the like. But the US has been known to be somewhat behind Europe in many ways. And of late, many have felt, particularly in the supply chain headaches, particularly in the energy crisis, look, just put that to one side. At the moment, we need to drill, baby, drill. We need to ensure that we've got energy security rather than this transition. How much has that helped or hindered your business? Has we felt that effect at all? I, I'm actually a little bit uh, opposite to you mm. than what you're stating there. I think that this will happen first in the US due to the mm. fact that it's driven by the business case. I mean, what we see from customer after customers in the US is that electrification is the best business case. If there is something that I, I love with the US market is if there is a business case, it will happen. I think that the European market are still struggling to change and make that change happen. But uh, from our perspective, we're seeing a clear engagement and back to energy security. The electric grid is more reliable than the prices of oil. And even if we have some fluctuations, in the, especially in Europe right now, it's actually a way of mitigating the dependencies of oil. And I think that the, if you have the, both those, it's better solution and it's a cheaper solution. This transition will go very quickly. So, Robert, I think I, I get the whole EV thing. I just drove my first EV, a Ford F-150 truck. It was very cool. But I'm not so mm. sure about this whole automation thing. Explain your approach. Now, I, I actually I share your view there as well. I think that we have been chasing literally flying goats over <laughs> the last 10 years in the automotive industry. And I think that uh, Google and Waymo has been pioneering the whole industry. And I think that they've done and set the standard that's going to be the standard, for, but it's going to take a long time before it's actually been, uh, we can actually deploy it on real roads. And that approach, that's a pure Silicon Valley approach, has been a challenge since the start because mm -hmm. it requires literally us to chase our own tail for the whole industry. When we started the company, we took a different approach. And our ambition since the start has been to do bit by bit, find the right applications and find the right business cases to scale autonomous. Because if you look at a lot of other industries and a lot of other uh, applications, for instance, in factories and warehouses, we've been doing autom autonomous electric transport for more than 30 years now. Mm. And yep. that's we take a different approach. So I think that uh, technology-wise, the industry has been pushing it. But I think when it comes to actually finding use cases and real applications to it, it actually has uh, lacked a bit. And I think that's hopefully what we add to the equation. All right, Robert, great stuff. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes, uh, bringing us up to speed on what you guys are doing over at Enride. Robert Falk, Enride founder and CEO. Pleased to say that Karsten Breschke is with us, ING chief economist. Long time since I've spoken to you, sir. It is such a joy. I think you're out there in Frankfurt in between this holiday time. Talk to us about what China means for you from a global economic perspective, this reopening story. Well, it, it means a lot. It, it means uh, supply chain frictions in the very short run because we have lifted restrictions right now, but it means we're going to see many, many sick cases, many sicknesses, and that will probably mean that people simply cannot show up in the factories. But 
in the medium term, and then we talk probably end of Q1 2023, this clearly means that supply chain friction should go away much faster than we initially thought because China is really giving up on, on zero carbon. And that is good news for the global economy as we are, you know, we are um, looking into a recession in Europe um, in 2023. We even look into a recession in the US. So if China would now really start to recover starting second quarter 2023, this could help the global economy a lot. So, Karsten, talk to us from the European perspective what this means, because, you know, such a big trading partner uh, with the European Union and, and China. Where, where are you going to look first for some impacts on the European economy from China? Yeah, I think in the in the very short term, um, I think that even lifting all the restrictions means that there will be more supply chain frictions. So um, I'm, I'm really looking into uh, European industry and probably having more supply chain frictions over the winter. And the winter is already going to be a tough economic one in, in Europe. Um, but then when we get out of the winter, when, uh, when, when China is then somehow settling into this new post-zero COVID reality, um, this would clearly benefit uh, the uh, the European industry, the European companies that are so dependent on input goods from from China. And just to show you some sort of statistics, uh, I think in in Germany, more than fifty percent of the manufacturing sector say that they are one way or the other depending on China. So clearly, Germany, but also Europe, needs a growing Chinese economy. May he live in interesting times, is the Chinese proverb, actually, that you quote at the top of your note. And boy, have we lived in interesting times in the last few years, but also in 2022. And it's been not just a story of China, not just a story of global disruption, but notably one of Russia, Ukraine, of the impact on energy markets and the impact and the devastation that's wreaked upon Europe in particular. And I'm interested at this moment as to whether you see, with the warmer snap, the weather slightly more temperate in Europe than we were expecting, there has been an easing off of concerns around energy supply chains there. But talk to us longer term about how your comfort levels look for Europe as an economy with respect to energy. Well, Karen, I found out that actually it is not a proverb, but it is a curse to start with. Um, but, uh, but but looking at, at Europe, and, and I think you know the picture changes by the week. Just one or two weeks ago, we were saying this was actually a, very, a cold winter spell hitting the um, the entire region. What we saw happening is, um, I think, a week ago, consumption, gas consumption in Europe was clearly above historical averages again. So now it's turning around, and we we saw, we saw a temperature shift by almost 20 degrees, going from minus 10 Celsius to plus 10 Celsius. So this would clearly help. Um, the reduction in, in gas consumption. And I think in, in any case shows us that there will not be an energy supply issue through this winter. What we still have is an energy price crisis in mm. Europe. Um, and it will it will determine how severe this winter recession will be. So it currently looks, I think, a bit more positive so that this recession is going to be a mild recession. But what is even more important, in my view, for, especially for Europe, is what's going to happen in the second half of 2023. So here we have many forecasters saying that Europe would return to pre-growth or pre-crisis growth levels. And I'm a bit more cautious because I think that we are still living in a period of high energy prices. Mm -hmm. We're still living in a period of structural changes to global trade. So I'm a bit more concerned that, that Europe will really experience a more subdued recovery in the second half of 23 and also in 2024 than many currently expect. 
Carson, we uh, recently had the Bank of Japan, of all banks, uh, kind of throw in a towel and signal that it was open to higher rates and to fight inflation. So, you know, along with the Bank of England, the ECB, and of course, the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. What do you think the next move is for this Federal Reserve Bank, given what we know now about economic conditions? And now maybe another little data point with China reopening. Yeah, you, know, you, you would argue that if, you know, if the Bank of Japan, of all the central right. banks, starts to become really concerned about inflation, I think there has to be a serious issue. And that's, uh, that was the big story of 2022. Um, I think that the Bank of Japan is also likely to join this, um, this group of, of Western central banks um, with hiking interest rates. Um, so the only question is if the Bank of Japan now starts, will we see, will we see other central banks, particularly the Fed, really making a pause or even stopping the hiking cycle already in the, in the first quarter. We think they will. Huh? We think the Fed is going to step in Q1. Um, we, I think, have become a bit more doubtful about the ECB because the ECB has been talking very hawkishly um, since the last meeting over the last couple of days. So it looks very likely that if the ECB is um, going further, then the fact that we will see more rate hikes coming in Europe, even when the Fed um, stops, and the big story for the second half of 2023 will be yeah. whether central banks will actually dare cutting rates again or whether we will really stay at a higher level for longer. I mean, it's worth saying that, of course, the U.S. has managed to get its rates up a little slightly greater paced, higher levels, all told, versus the ECB already. But is that why does the Federal Reserve have the bandwidth to slow down in the first quarter? Is it that inflation is going the direction it wants to? Is it more that we're now seeing a bond market that doesn't have the buyers that it was used to, particularly if we start to see borrowing costs in Japan actually maybe even look attractive to the Japanese by themselves. Yeah, I think um, in terms of the Fed, what, what's going to happen is that inflation is going to come down faster than the Fed itself probably expects. Um, and that has to do with the real estate market, um, has to do also with the entire inflation basket. So if the real estate uh, market in the U.S. now really starts to correct, and we see first the data points, hint, uh, you know, suggesting that this is happening, headline inflation will come down very quickly, and this is then the big reason to pause. Uh, turning back to to Japan, uh, here we do have an economy that uh, that could benefit from the opening up of China. Here we have an economy that is not suffering as, for example, the European economy from higher commodity and energy prices. Um, and this is an economy in which fiscal policy has done the, the tough work, I think, for, for almost two decades. Um, so therefore, it, it is likely that we will see a first policy rate hike in Japan coming up. So Carson, I have the Paul Sweeney Personal Inflation Index, otherwise known as a daily national average gasoline price. And it's down to $3.10 per gallon here, down from a peak of $5. Um, so here in the U.S. at least, inflation is, in fact, it has peaked. It is coming down. You can look across a, several different metrics. Give us a sense of how it is in Europe. Do you expect it to be more, more sticky in Europe? Yeah, if I look at uh, Carson Jesse's personal inflation <laughs> index, which is unfortunately more than only gasoline prices, um, I think we, we are somewhere close to the peak. And uh, in, in the first quarter of 23, we will see that Eurozone headline inflation will start to come down as energy prices are somewhat lower, as it is also you know, getting harder for companies to really pass through the higher production costs to, to consumers. So we will see a gradual 
retreatment by by inflation but still yeah this means that i think on average um inflation in the eurozone will will come in at between six or seven percent um in 2023 that is a lot and also means that there is an enormous enormous pressure on um, purchasing power or the loss in purchasing power of uh, european citizens all right, good stuff. We really appreciate getting your perspective there, Karsten Brzezinski. He is the chief economist for ING. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about it all with Charles de Bussesel. He is Society General, Equity Strategist. Charles, it is wonderful to have some time with you. Happy holidays. Talk to us about, well, when you are looking at 2023 and a potential China reopening, what makes you think that the market's going to trade sideways? Well, look, it's a, it's a balance between the new flow with the China reopening, which is somewhat of a positive, but also the, the issue is the valuation side. Uh, and as far as the U.S. is concerned, valuations being back uh, on center stage is not really a good thing. Um, if you think of it this way, you know, Europe has actually been outperforming this year, despite the U.S. massively going down. So for me, this is kind of unusual in theory, but what it shows is that at last, and that's the good news for 2023, valuations start to matter. We've ended 25 years of falling bond yields, which meant what? People buying growth stocks. Where is growth? The US, not Europe. And now that's the end of that long cycle. And so at last, valuations, and we see it again today, mean that, so yes, Europe can have a good time. Charles, you know, some folks are concerned, still concerned about earnings risk in this market in 2023. How do you view earnings in the S&P? How much downside might there still be? Okay, overall flat on the year, but that's, the, the, I think, the rosy scenario, most likely down, so it's mid to single digits. Um, so earnings are going to go down. There's going to be downgrades um, you know, across the board in many regions of the world. I think that is expected. What we need is to see where there are pockets where investor sentiment is too thin. Obviously, the volumes are fairly thin today, so it's hard to really draw many conclusions. But certainly what we are you know, looking to, to um, search is some places 
you can think of Japanese banks on the back of last week's news flow or some cyclicals in Europe where actually valuations are fine. So earnings will go down. We all know this. Yeah. So price 10, not across the board. Talk to us about the individual, you just mentioned, I think I heard you say Japanese banks there, but financials more broadly have been surprisingly underperforming, I mean, down 13%, even though yields have pushed higher. I'm interested in, can you speak as broad brush as industry groups? Can you still say energy is going to outperform like it did in this year? I mean, I think it's up some 60% year to date, whereas everything else is in the red. Or do you have to be stock specific rather than sector specific? Look, if you take the case of uh, financials, as you pointed out, despite rising yields, they've had an appalling performance. What was the missing block? Mm. The missing block was economic growth, real growth. If you don't have real growth, real banking sector, your insurance will not necessarily grow. And so our expectation is that at some point, the cycle starts to turn from an economic perspective in terms of real growth, not nominal. And so financials in that you know, uh, circumstance could outperform. If you look at the energy sector, what it had for it was really total shareholder returns. Dividends plus buybacks, more than 10% yield in the number of stocks. So this has been a combination of, do you have the valuation angle? Yes or no, energy certainly have it. Banks had it, insurance had it, but are you missing something? Growth, and if it's missing, you don't have performance. Our hope is that you start to see a turn running real growth some of these reflation traits, not stagflation traits, to outperform. Charles, you mentioned energy. I mean, I'm looking at some of these names like Exxon up 80%, and a lot of these things are 50, 60, 70%. Have I missed that trade? Um, the bulk of it, yes. We are still long uh, that sector. We still think that if you look at the cash generation that they, they offer, the total shareholder return that they offer on both sides of the Atlantic, then I think, yes, that's still a sector that we're happy to, to hold. Where, in globally speaking at the moment, Charles, is underrated, do you think? Number one, the European consumer. Hmm. What we've seen is a massive rise in the risk premium around anything which had to do with Europe on the back of the war in Ukraine. And so people went away from the euro, the currency, from booms, from European equities. And what we are seeing currently is that we seem to be going through that winter in a choppy way, but more or less unscathed. And suddenly what we have in Europe is 1 trillion euros of excess savings that start to be spent. And if you look in terms of valuations, these guys trade at 60%, not 1.6, but 6.0% discounts to the staples uh, sectors. So definitely it's a sector that people have brushed away thinking that the European consumer was dead. It's not the case. And what we've seen is a rebound of the past few months, and we think this has further to go. Charles, really since the great financial crisis in the equity markets, you know, the leading group has been technology, whether it's the FANG stocks or more broadly defined tech. In a rising interest rate environment, can that still be the case? As this market maybe starts to move higher some point next year, can tech be a leader or not in a rising interest rate environment? The answer is no. The reason behind it is that the gap in valuation has to narrow because valuations, as it was starting um, earlier on, start to matter. You know, what you've seen today uh, in the case of some of the EV names we're mentioning, the supply chain disruptions, 
here and there, what happens at the back of the COVID policy in China, loosening, maybe easing some of these fears. That's one side of the equation. The issue I have, if I look at the US market, is that just five stocks have been accounting for the bulk of the performance of that index. The concentration yeah. of performance is massive in the US. And we still have a lot of gap in valuation there. When your cost of equity is zero, you don't care paying up for growth. When things start to be expensive in terms of financing this, think of SPAC, think of some of the techniques, then valuations mean that the rotation out of the expensive names that you're putting on the screen here at the NASDAQ has further to go. What then, as we see interest rates rise, as we start to see the consumer maybe under pressures or waiting for some sort of growth, is it... I mean, consumer discretionary down, consumer staples up. Are we are we in any way betting on a U.S. consumer in the way that you're thinking maybe the European consumer is underrated? No, the way I look at it in the U.S. is that I'd much rather buy some of the industrial names in the U.S. as opposed to consumer names. I think some of the financing conditions in the U.S. can be fragile. I think the unemployment market is still kind of a question mark. And what really, what they need eventually, in the end, is a pivot from the Fed and a cut in rates. What the U.S. industrials names need is not obviously a rate cut, but the need is growth trade to come back. And I think the news flow from China today goes towards this. So if you think of it, industrials in the U.S. as opposed to the consumer, in Europe, more of the consumer. Think of it also about the Inflation Reduction Act, some of the big moves on the policy front that we've seen in the U.S. context really suggesting that many um, corporates will benefit from that spending from the states um, in the U.S. in terms of financing the green transition. And that's one of our key convictions. Right. Maybe surprisingly, the U.S. will be a place of green transition in 2023. It's not just about the European Green Deal. All right. Great stuff, Charles. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes of time there to check in with us. Charles de Bossaswan, Societe Generale Equity Strategist, joining us via Zoom from Paris there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.